Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. A few weeks ago, I woke up in the middle of the night to a distant rumble. Flashing light lit up my bedroom, and I wondered, am I dreaming? Could this actually be a storm? I grew up on the East Coast where thunderstorms are just a regular part of life. And to be honest, there's something about them that I kind of miss. So at first, I was just mesmerized by the streaks of lightning that were flashing over the hills in the distance. And I stood by my window and watched the storm, and I was just really savoring it. But then came this unsettling feeling. I remembered how dry it is outside, how lightning strikes start fires, and I started to worry. In just the past three days, there have been nearly 11,000 lightning strikes all across California. Out of those lightning sparks, over 370 new fires have ignited. Some merged, eventually forming two of the biggest wildfires ever to burn in California history. Some homes in Vacaville are burning from a fast-moving wildfire that had already charred thousands of acres in Napa, Sonoma, and Solano counties. It's been two weeks, and those fires are still burning today. Now, the tough pill to swallow in all this is we still have months left in peak wildfire season. So there's a chance that we're just getting started. Today on the show, we've got a two-parter for you. First, we're going to answer your frequently asked questions about wildfire evacuations. Stuff like what to pack and where to go and how to get out if you don't have a car. Then we go in search of the silver lining in all this, and we learn what the future holds for a beloved redwood forest. I'm Olivia Ellen Price. This is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. There are lots of examples of when wildfire has affected the Bay Area, but it's still something that you might think of as a rural problem, something that happens far away from our urban centers. With the latest batch of wildfires, though, we saw some people facing evacuation orders for the first time. 
And it got me and a lot of you thinking about what the evacuation plan should look like in our own homes. KQD reporter Carly Severn is here to answer some of the questions that you all sent our way. Hey, Carly. Hey, Olivia. How's it going? Good. So first thing, I want to know, how will I even know if I actually have to evacuate? So one thing it's really important to know is you get your evacuation warning and then you get an evacuation order. They are two separate things. The warning, it's exactly what it sounds like. That's the warning that you might have to evacuate at some point. The evacuation order, that is go time. If you get the order, you leave straight away. The warning is when you're going to have a little bit of time to prep, but the evacuation order could still come within minutes or hours. Um, How will you know to evacuate? Cal Fire say that they're going to use high-low sirens, so you should be able to hear. If you live in a really remote area, they might send fire engines up to actually physically warn you and get you out. But the thing is, do not wait for the knock at the door, basically, because it might not come. Cal Fire say it's really important to sign up for phone alerts. Get phone alerts from your county and also the state. And if someone in your family or a friend doesn't actually have a smartphone, there are ways that you can get alerts that don't rely on you having a smartphone. They will come to email, they will come to your home, home phone. Um, But if you have the smartphone and a family member doesn't, make sure that you are their conduit for really crucial, potentially life-saving information. And also, if your phone is getting all of these alerts, which could save your life, make sure your phone is up loud. I mean, don't go to bed with your phone on silent or do not disturb mode. You do not want to be sleeping through an evacuation order. Okay, so let's say, you know, a warning comes, an order comes, it's time to evacuate. What should I be thinking about as I'm actually leaving my house? What do I need to make sure I'm taking with me? Okay, so you want a go bag, basically. You want it all ready to evacuate, and you want to keep it somewhere that you can access it instantly. That's really important. Again, if this happened in the middle of the night, you would not want to be searching for it. You want it by the door. We have a checklist on our site of all of those essentials. There are actually quite a few, but you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so you're going to need some things like face masks. It's recommended at least two per person and also hand sanitizer. Um, Don't wait until you're under an evacuation warning or God forbid, an evacuation order to make this kit. Have it all made in advance and it needs to be carryable, right? You do not want something that you have to have a vehicle to transport. When you get that warning, you already want to have been thinking about your evacuation route. What if one road was closed? Would you have a backup way to get out of there? And so when that warning comes down, you prepare to get moving. You got your bag, put them in your car if you have one. Make sure your car can get out. Gather your pets. Make sure your family know the plan and be ready to leave straight away. Okay. And then where do I go? That's a great question. A lot of people think evacuation, you you go to a shelter, right? And that's one thing you can do. There are evacuation centers and shelters run by the counties and the Red Cross. You can also ask a friend or a family member, you know, can I come and stay with you? But like I say, we're in a pandemic. You've got to ask some tough questions. Is anyone in your house feeling sick right now? Can we socially distance if I come to stay? Is anyone vulnerable living in your house? You have to ask these questions regarding the coronavirus. Now, I know we got some questions about people who have health or mobility issues for whom evacuating is just sort of a slightly more daunting task. What can they do to prepare? 
Uh, number one, I would say treat the evacuation warning like the evacuation order because you're going to need that extra time to potentially deal with the complexities of moving someone with medical or mobility issues. Also, you want to ensure that your emergency bag has any medicines or supplies or home use medical devices that you might need. Also, keep a medications list that includes prescriptions and other really important information because you might need to hand that off to someone, basically. Okay, a lot of this advice, though, requires you to have a car, which a lot of people in the Bay Area don't have, especially if you're living, you know, in San Francisco or Oakland or one of these more urban areas. How are those people going to get out? I'm so glad you asked that. I have seen that question so many times on Twitter. How do I evacuate without a car? Um, I would want to repeat the importance of having an emergency bag that's light enough to carry or transport without a vehicle. Cal Fire recommends that you you work with your neighbors or nearby friends and family if you've got them and coordinate with them. You're basically trying to find a reliable, sure ride, right? But if you're relying on a ride to get you out to evacuate, they recommend that you leave your home sooner rather than later because what if the wildfire progressed and your ride was not actually able to reach you to evacuate? All of this stuff you got to think about. Well, Carly, as always, you've given me a lot to think about. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you and good luck. One of the fires that's burning now ripped through one of the most beloved parks in the Bay Area, Big Basin State Park, which is actually California's first state park. It was established back in 1902. Now, a few of the beautiful old buildings on site are gone, like the park headquarters. But people seem most concerned about the redwood trees themselves. After all, some in the park are more than 2,000 years old. We got KQED science reporter Danielle Venton here to tell us a little more about how fire affects forests, like the one in Big Basin. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Olivia. Okay, so first off, what do we know so far about the conditions of the redwoods in Big Basin? The trees seem like they're going to be okay. Most of them are still standing. You know, we did have a lot of loss in the CZU fire that burned Big Basin and its buildings, but the forest is going to be all right. Fires are a natural part of California's history, Um, although in the last hundred years or so, we've been suppressing fires in this harmful way. But for most of its history, California has had fires, and our old-growth redwoods have seen a lot of burns, you know, hundreds over their lifetime. I spoke with Jeffrey Kane, a professor of fire ecology and fuels management at Humboldt State University, and he said redwoods are one of the most fire-resistant tree species. I always tell the students, you know, redwoods have belts and uh, suspenders. They can (laughs) deal with a, a lot of fire. Well, that's pretty promising to hear, but it's still hard to imagine, you know, going to a state park and walking through a charred out forest. How long does it take these redwood forests to rejuvenate themselves? Well, the trees can start re-sprouting either from the base or from the crown of the tree in just a few months. And definitely by next spring, there will be new green foliage. The bark will not permanently stay charred because bark expands and that'll get absorbed in a few years. And we should remember that these fires can actually improve the health of the forests. For example, I'm thinking of a big fire that was up at Humboldt Redwood State Park in 2003, the Canoe Fire. Um, So that was about 17 years ago. And if you go there, it's beautiful now. It is all green. You can see through the forest. The big trees are still standing. And in fact, Jeff Kane says 
fire is really good for the redwood forest because it clears out some of the competing tree species that vie with redwoods to get light and water. Douglas fir is a common one, and they start to become more common in the absence of fire and compete with redwoods. And it kind of shifts the composition away from redwoods. So Big Basin is going to be fine in the long run. It's, you know, we lost the buildings, but the forest itself, it sounds like, is going to heal. Yeah, that's right. I think it can be easy to lose sight of that and just like the good that comes from wildfires when we are dealing with the negative effects on humans, you know, like the destruction of property and, you know, we're having to deal with wildfire smoke, you know, coming into to our neighborhoods. Part of the problem is that we have built houses ever closer to the forest. These are places that are beautiful um, to live, but it means that we can't let fires happen as naturally. We are also seeing fires burn more intensively because we've suppressed them for so long. And also climate change is intensifying this and drying out the land and making our days hotter and giving us more extreme fire conditions. But there are some solutions that we should think about. Um, we can improve fire codes for how new homes are built and make it easier for older homes to be retrofitted and become less flammable. We also need to talk about zoning codes and whether there might be some places that are too risky to build or to rebuild. And a huge part of the solution is more managed or prescribed burning. And there's a couple of encouraging uh, steps that have recently been taken on this front. There's a new partnership between the state of California and the Forest Service to dramatically increase the amount of planned fire on the land. That's not without challenges, but it's encouraging. And then also, we're seeing the state start to work more and more with California's native tribes to introduce more cultural burning, which is part of traditional indigenous practice. These intentionally set fires regenerated the land and encouraged the growth of certain plants for tribal use and attracted game and reduced the chances of catastrophic out-of-control fires. Tribes were not allowed to do this for a long time uh, because the federal and state government was all about extinguishing fires. But now we're at a point where state and federal land managers have enormous areas of land that they know need to be treated with low-intensity fire. And tribal leaders are eager to restore traditional burning and to gain access to ancestral lands. These partnerships are still in early days, but this is a really encouraging step. I mean, it sounds like the whole takeaway from this conversation is, you know, we, we can really think about wildfire in just like a more nuanced way. It's not like every fire burning is bad all the time. That's right. All right. Well, thanks so much, Danielle. My pleasure. Thank you, Olivia. That's all for today. You can find more wildfire coverage and resources online at kqed.org. And we'll put a few helpful links in our show notes, too. Today's story was produced by Katrina Schwartz, Rob Spate, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our show is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's Trivia Game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? 
Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks.